And happy Sunday. It is 2 p.m. on the East Coast in Newfoundland. It's 3.30. This is PFG Live. Welcome aboard. I hope you guys are having a great Sunday so far. We have a great lineup today. Coming up later will be our guest, Adam Demuth, and we'll be talking about things grinding and uh, reporting on previous news. Who do we have? Uh, Carl, welcome aboard. Uh, Carl reports 66 degrees in each East Greenwich, Rhode Island. Welcome, Carl. And Tuck is here. Tuck, can we get a weather report from you? I mean, I know it's, oh, there it is, 70 degrees and sunny in Buffalo, New York. Nice to see you. Who else do we have here? Evils. Welcome, sir, from Belgium. 24C and 57% relative humidity in Ghent, Belgium. Blake is here. Uh, 76 Fahrenheit and sunny in Rochester, New York. Boy, the, the that corner of New York is getting well represented. CJ Stevens, welcome, sir. 84 and sunny in beautiful East Tennessee. Test room, 2003, welcome. From the Netherlands, let's see if I can pronounce the name of your town. Oostkapel, Netherlands, welcome. 18.5 C, 86% relative humidity, dark and lightly clouded. Art that makes art west, welcome aboard 70, uh, sorry, 47 degrees. 47 degrees and 100% humidity, it's raining. Ugh. Carl is here. All rise. Be seated. Please explain the code on the screen under the time. I will. I promise. Uh, and of course, Wes says South Central Idaho, where the onions and the potatoes live in peaceful harmony. Uh, Unix Carbide in the Brooklyn of New York is reporting 75 degrees Fahrenheit and 64.42% relative humidity indoors. Listen to that again, folks. 64% relative humidity indoors. Uh, Ike went through some serious flooding in Brooklyn because of these recent uh, weather conditions. So uh, let's, let's all bring our uh, desiccants to his place. Paul checks in. He is in the garage with the door open in Dallas. Tells you everything you need to know. Wonderful. Almost machining is almost here. 78 degrees Fahrenheit and in the Phoenix of Arizona, which means it's 0% relative humidity. Robert Simpson is here. 74 and 70% relative humidity in sunny north of Detroit. The sunny of the north. Welcome. Okay, so if you look up at that little code up there, everybody's wondering what that is. That is known as an aviation uh, METAR, which stands for meteorological something, something, something. But they basically, in aviation, that was that's what would print out on your teletype machine in the old days, and that's called a station report. So it says KMHT, that's the name of the airport. In this case, it's Manchester, New Hampshire Airport. Then it says 011753 Zulu. So it's the 01 is the date. That's the 1st of October. That's today. Uh, seven, uh, 1753 Zulu. That's the time of the report. So that was a, f a few minutes ago. 
says three four zero zero success winds are three four zero degrees at six knots, which means if you were flying three four three four zero degrees, it would be right on your nose. Okay, six knots, seven statute miles is the visibility. So one of the interesting pieces of trivia is that the the visibility is given in statute miles. Everything else is given in uh, in nautical miles. CLR means clear. So the uh, sky is clear and I can confirm that it is clear. Temperature 25 slash dew point 12. Nice and dry. Altimeter 3014. That's 30.14 inches of mercury. That's what you set on your altimeter in the aircraft. And then RMK means remarks. So after that, everything could be a whole bunch of stuff, which I won't I won't get into, but that's what it, that's what it says. That's how we read uh, weather in aviation speak. Let's see. Um, we got everybody who checked in, so that's good. A uh, little, a uh, few minor updates. <clears throat> um, so I owe everybody the Ford F one fifty Lightning report. Um, my electric truck has been awesome. We're coming up on 10,000 miles, which means it's going up for its 10,000 mile checkup. And, and, uh, the maintenance schedule on the vehicle is pretty simple. It's like, we want to see it every 10,000 miles. And then you go in for the maintenance and they grease a few fittings and send you home because they already know all about your vehicle because it's on the network and they've been talking to it the whole time. So literally it's a hundred dollar, you know, you're in, you're out, you're done. And I'm, I'm heading up to do that. It has been a fantastic vehicle. Everything has been great. Uh, Adrian is here, 19 degrees Celsius and 19 mile visibility, scattered clouds and light winds in Surrey, the UK. Welcome. Greetings from Hamilton pianos. Oh, okay. Did your Swiss arrive yet? Yeah. So uh, Adrian and I had a little chat about getting a Swiss lathe. And actually, we're going to pick on Adam when he shows up. Uh, and maybe we'll get him to buy a Swiss, Swiss lathe. What do you think? We'll see if we can make that happen. Um, so getting back to the truck, uh, fantastic experience. Have there been technical issues? Yes. And one of the things that I had to go... Uh, for a visit was it wasn't getting updates properly. Uh, so I went up there and my guy took care of me and at the Ford dealership, which is Grapponi Ford up in Bow, New Hampshire. And he manually hooked up to the truck and updated every map, uh, module and, and got everything up to date. And I think the biggest challenge with, with the system and Ford in general has been software-y things and network connection-y things. Those have been the problems. Uh, from a mechanical point of view, everything's been superb and I've been really enjoying it. So that's the brief, super brief 10,000-mile uh, report on the Ford Lightning. If anybody has any questions, feel free to put it in the chat. Um, let's see. That was the, that's the major thing on the lightning. I, it's been, it's been hauling stuff and hauling people and uh, just been a joy. 
one of the most surprising things has been how nice it is in uh, in rush hour. So I had to come back home from seeing my mom in Boston rush hour. And because the cruise control, the blue cruise will actually do complete hands off. And because it'll go down to zero miles an hour in that mode, it's actually pretty relaxing and you're not as stressed and, you know, angry (laughs) in traffic as one would otherwise normally be. So, uh, it's been, it's been a, a pleasure. So there you go. There's your, uh, lightning report. The uh, second thing I want to report on is our, um, our humidity sensor. We've been playing around. If you've been following, let me show you the, the latest data. Our, um, our, Adafruit Feather and our SHT45 uh, temperature and humidity sensor has been clicking along. And we're now in the midst of a battery life test. So once per hour, this thing wakes up, it gets on the internet, it updates its time, it reads the sensor, it posts the data to this notify site, Um, and it goes back to deep sleep and, and preserves its battery, uh, power. So it does this once an hour and so far it's doing pretty well. We had one crash. We understand why, uh, it's your connection almost. Um, I think everybody else is good. Is everybody's audio good? If anybody has a problem, let me know. Um, does the lightning indicate mileage per megajoule? Actually, it measures in, um, let me see if I remember. There is a measurement. There's a figure of merit, uh, and I can't remember what it is. And it does give you that score. And a a typical score is, um, I, oh, it's miles per kilowatt hour. That's what it is. Miles per kilowatt hour. And, uh, like I get 2.2 miles per kilowatt hour typically. So back to our, our temperature humidity sensor, you see where it, on your screen, if you're on the audio podcast, I'll read it for you. Uh, it says our battery is at 86.5% temperature, 72.5 Fahrenheit and relative humidity, 56.2%. So this was taken at 145. That was, um, half an hour ago. And uh, I'll point out that we started this experiment on Thursday, the 28th of September. Today's October 1st at 8 p.m. So this thing's been running for days and doing a great job. Hey, Machine New Zealand is here. Welcome aboard, sir. Are you at work or about to get to work? (laughs) So Machine NZ uh, is at the antipode almost uh, and is checking in. But they just had a time change. So I don't know if you knew this, but New Zealand changes its clocks at the equinox, um, which is not when we change our clocks. So if you have to know what time it is in New Zealand, use an app. That's all I'm going to say about that. So stay tuned on our uh, Adafruit feather and relative humidity measurements. 
uh, and we'll keep you informed, but this has been a, a wild success. And we, I think we're on the road to something that you can charge and then ignore for a few months. And I think that is going to be super cool. Uh, let's see. Machine New Zealand is at work. So you just nod your head. You don't have to like type into your phone or anything. You just stick in here with us. So that's the update on the, uh, on the Adafruit, uh, experiments and the Sensorian sensor experiments. If you want to play with that stuff on the links page, um, pfg.gg slash links, there's another link that says the quest for dry filament and all of our relative humidity measurements and sensors and stuff. I'm, I'm putting that all in, in that spot. So we're sharing all the 3d prints we're sharing, uh, we will be sharing the software. We're a little behind on that. We have a GitHub, uh, account where we're publishing the software and you can join in on the fun as you wish. Um, let's see one more thing I want to cover, and then we're going to get to our, our, uh, much anticipated guest. And that is that, uh, Unix carbide, uh, Ike has offered to teach a course in, uh, the use of Git and GitHub. Now this is a software, uh, versioning system. Oh, Hey, Chris just checked in. Uh, Chris says, greetings, earthlings, 77 degrees and sunny in South central Pennsylvania. The rain appears to have stopped. Yeah. Some places it stopped. <laughs> it stopped here. So, um, Git and GitHub is a way to do software versioning and software sharing and publishing and collaboration. Very important to software developers. And there's been some interest in that. So we've set a date and I'm going to give you that information right now. Uh, let's see next week. Where am I? Here we go. October 5th, Thursday at 7 PM on the discord server. That's our plan for running, uh, our Git course. Okay. So if you're interested in that, you got two things you got to do. Number one, get on our discord server. Uh, you have time to figure that out. And number two, the event will be on the Git uh, on the discord server. So it'll kind of be like a zoom meeting. It's going to be, um, you know, a chat and we'll be learning something from, from Ike. So it'll be pretty cool. Uh, let's see. Iron for iron forest knives has checked in. He says, hello from Oklahoma city, 90 degrees Fahrenheit and 33% relative humidity. Yow. That's a little warm. <laughs> Almost who's in Phoenix says rain only comes out of the end of a garden hose here. I get it. Joel L is late. Listen, buddy, if you're late again, absolutely nothing is going to happen. Welcome. Um, okay. So that's the Git course Thursday night, 7 PM on our discord server. Be there or be square. Joel says he'll be there for the Git, uh, the Git hub course. It's got a U in it, but we won't hold that against you. Unix is confirming October 5th, 7 PM is the target covering Git use fundamentals and using the GitHub universe. 
Ooh. Excellent. All right. Uh, if there's any other questions on that stuff, let me know. Otherwise, I think we're going to uh, bring in our guest, Adam Demuth. So please stand by. Hey, look, it's Adam. Oh, wait. There, your audio's on now. Hi, Adam. How's it going? It's going great. Nice to have you here, sir. So today's topic is grinder workflow. And I'd like to read you a, uh, a letter we got. This is what prompted this whole thing. I received a, I received a letter in the mail from a, a he wants to remain anonymous. So I'm just going to, uh, use a pseudonym. Uh, this is from, uh, Jim Sanders of Sanders machine place in, uh, Zanesville, Ohio. And, uh, Jim, Jim Sanders says, I'm not sure if I can use my hand to wipe off the chuck after I use my most beloved PFG stones. He says, I'm worried that my skin cells might be left on the chuck and cause a dimensional inaccuracy. Please enlighten me as I just bought a new grinder and I'm really trying to learn how to use it well. Sincerely, Jim Sanders, who may or may not have a YouTube channel. And here's his letter. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. Or maybe I am making this up. Uh, Actually, he did have that question. Of course, I'm talking about John Saunders. And uh, he, he was... Wanted to know, do I, do I stone? Do I wipe? Do I, can I use my hand? So we don't have to answer that first, but we do have to answer that or else we will not get paid for this episode. So what are your thoughts on, on workflow? I mean, I have, I know I have a pretty standardized checklist and ways of doing things, but, um, how about you? Do you have sort of, is, is it built in or do you have a conscious checklist? I can't really abide to a rigid system um, because if you're, you're doing like large plates on the magnet, that's going to need kind of a different treatment than feeding, you know, parts this big into a fixture. Um, You you have to approach those situations individually. Um, That being said to kind of like cut to the chase, usually like the last thing to touch the magnet and the last thing to touch the part should be the stone. Um, but it's just like years of muscle memory. Anytime I set something on the grinder, I'm, I'm inclined to do that. Uh, and it's just a a really hard habit to break. Um, but I, I don't know that it's, uh, affecting anything. Um, because if you, you ever run your finger across the ground surface, like even what we consider a good ground surface, like, uh, 16 to 32 micro inch. It, it catches your fingernail. There's actually a fair bit of topography there, peaks and valleys. Um, and so I, I think if, as long as the debris getting left behind from when you wipe your hand fits in those peaks and valley gaps, uh, you're okay. Hmm. 
I, so I know that when we use uh, gauge blocks, a lot of the conventional wisdom has always been, you know, wipe the gauge block on a, you know, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of uh, opinions about where to pick up the right amount of skin oil. Uh, yeah. Um, so that would seem to indicate that, you know, wiping with your hands is not the end of the world. Um, no, no. And that's kind of where my head took me, but I will say in practice, if I have a day where I'm doing like a lot of turnovers on my grinding chuck parts going on and off and all day long, uh, your, your hands show that, you know, you, you have like kind of dried cake grit and coolant on and, I take efforts to keep them clean, but I could also see, you know, maybe picking up a piece of abrasive grit or swarf uh, off your hand. Um, but that kind of highlights the need to have have like a developed sense of feel when you're seeding the part. Um, most of the people who I, I considered to be peers in grinding, a lot of their talent was just sense. And I think a lot of people get annoyed from that from a a process design standpoint. They want to have parameters and processes and and senses, just not something fun to incorporate into something like that. But I I think you can you could do it correctly. Um, But yeah, you do need to know what a part that has a very fine speck of grit under it feels like Uh, it. You know, that's that's part of working on a magnet. Do you do you uh, slide parts on from the the edge of the magnet? That's question. I have two uh, questions. Not from the edge. Okay. I I corner down uh, on the magnet and then give it a little scooch. Um, I find like on my grinding chuck, the edge usually has like a lot of crud on it. Yeah. And so I just try to avoid that. <laughs> Uh, so, so I, I, I find myself using my hands a lot and I have no problem, you know, I never, I never worried about what I was depositing on the chuck and I don't think I'm going to start worrying now. I, I, my opinion is that you, you, you have these sensors, right? You got this magnificent sensor tool and the whole idea is not only are you wiping potentially wiping off some grit, but you're also feeling it. Um, and that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, although I, like you said, the last thing that should touch the chuck is your, is the stone. I still, I still tend to wipe with my hand after the stone, but I guess (laughs) we could have a religious argument about that. Yeah. Um, it's just it's like a a very deep long running habit that I have, and um, honestly, it you know it's not been a problem yet, and so I I don't beat myself up too much for doing it. Um, <laughs> but well, uh, let's back up like way back, okay? Because workflow workflow starts way before you're dropping work on a chuck. So yep. let's let's take the process from the very beginning, and we can we can share sort of what what we do. Um, first of all, for everybody who may or may not know you from uh, the intertubes, uh, why don't you 
give your uh, channel name on YouTube. I think that's where most people can find you. I don't, is, is there any other social media that you that you're doing? No, right I don't now? really do much on Instagram anymore. Um, okay, I don't know. I just kind of don't get much from it these days. So, the, but yeah, it's uh, it's this name right here in YouTube. Okay, so Adam the Machinist, all one word. Yep. On YouTube. Uh, and we'll link to that in the information on this YouTube video. Um, and you do an excellent job of teaching and explaining, and I appreciate it. I look forward to your videos. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so, so you wake up, flow. you wake up on a Monday and you have grinding to do. How does your, how does your checklist start? Coffee. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then I get the machine in warm up mode. And this machine has my CNC one has a pretty quick plateau. Um, because I keep the coolant heated over winter, it's not something I have to mess with in like the warmer months. But now the heater's back in the tank, uh, it, it more or less hits its plateau in about 15 minutes. Um, and so while that's happening, I'm kind of laying out my work for the day. Um, so I have generally when I'm doing grinding, it's either a lot of one shape or a lot of all different shapes. Uh, and so I'm kind of trying to make my game plan. Like, am I doing 20 of the same thing? What's the best way to do that? Or I have 20 unique parts. Are there any commonalities? Like maybe one's half inch by three quarter by four. And another is a quarter inch by half inch by three. Can I do those half inch dimensions at the same time? And, and so I'm looking for common threads amongst odd parts. And so what that's what I'm doing while the grinder's warming up is just kind of getting a game plan. And and you uh, have a and then you said you have a 15 minute warm-up? Yeah. Okay. And so I'm running coolant on the chuck and the table while the wheel's warming up and then the table's reciprocating. Um so uh everything's warmed up squeegee off the table i like it dry um I, I find stoning the table with even just a little bit of residual moisture uh it, it sucks the stone down and you mm -hmm. don't know if you're fighting like a high spot yeah you lose the, just like a suction you lose the feel and so one of the things i do to like speed up that drying time because even if you squeegee and towel it off you still have to like let it flash off a little um, but I find a little squirt of IPA uh, usually acts as a dryer and gets any, maybe maybe you have like a little high oil content in your oil or in your coolant, and it'll, it'll also kind of wipe off some of that. Um, so once the chuck's cleaned and dried, I uh, give it a light stoning and uh, mount my first part. So we have a lot of commonalities here. Um, I, I have a 30-minute warm-up cycle uh just because that's how i set up the machine and uh i do not run my coolant during that time interestingly What's the reasoning? um i don't think i have reasoning uh i i do my thermal conditioning in the tank because i also have the heater right so i mm -hmm. i bring the heat I, I have it set to 68 fahrenheit I have the room set to 68 Fahrenheit. Um, and there's arguments that could be made that that might not be the ideal numbers. But again, I, I, I have to consider the 
dimensional requirements of what I'm doing. And it, the, I don't have tight dimensions I'm holding. I'm holding flat most of the time. Uh, and I also, so the, you talked about dry and doing, doing the last wipe with a, with a solvent. So I clean the, the chuck with, um, I use denatured alcohol typically in the shop and I'll do a wipe down also with, uh, denatured alcohol. And then I'll go in with the, I have the six inch stones that I use for, for the chuck, uh, because I'm working on what, what size chuck are you working on? Six by 12. Okay. So I'm working on a six by 18, same thing. I'll stone the chuck and that kind of brings me to zero kind of where you're at. Uh, tell everybody what your, uh, what type of grinder you're running. I think most people know that have listened to us for a while. Uh, I, I run two Parker Majestics. So that one's a CNC and then that one's a manual. Excellent. And for the warm up cycle on the manual, do you stand there for half an hour and turn the knobs? I do not. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah, the 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 discovery of uh, the discovery of the uh, fish tank heater, the the eight hundred watt aquarium heater, was a huge win. What do you set yours to uh, in the winter? So normally I would go to sixty eight, and that's what I did for like the first year I had it. But I found you still get about a degree or two of ramp up from using the coolant, and believe it or not, some of that's pumping heat, not just the cooling of the cutting action, like the, the pumps actually heating. Um, and I had to put a data logger on it to like really understand what was heating things. Um, but, uh, and so I find just going to like 67 kind of averages yep. off that two degree ramp up a little and you're, you're, you're still within a degree of 68 then instead of going from 68 to 70. Um, Let's talk. And then my, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, then my air is held at 68. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, the, uh, temperatures. Have you done, have you looked at temperatures of your column, for example? Uh, I think you, you did some temperature logging a while back. Yeah, I was concerned about spindle heat. Um, but the way they have that machine set up, uh, spindle heat really doesn't get into the column too bad. Um, I, I was pleased to see that. Uh, not spindle, I guess, but motor heat. Um, and then my other concern was performance of the ball screw for the uh, elevating axis. Um, is that going to have issues with heat? Mm -hmm. But they did something pretty clever by mounting the servo to the bottom of the column. It it handles growth better because as the column stretches, as it you know gets hotter and colder, the static point being at the bottom means the wheel head isn't on a ride with the column as the column gets hotter and colder. So I, I would say thermally that the machine's extremely stable uh, and just keeping everything as near 20 C as possible helps that tremendously. We but. do have some questions coming in. Uh, Tuck's garage says, how do you get thin plates off the mag chuck without sliding? Hmm. Uh, so let me find a thin plate. 
So one of the reasons I run a 12-inch chuck on a grinder that has 18 inches of travel is I have the chuck all the way to one side, and then I kind of have a dead space on the other end of the travel, and then my dresser. But I can, if I have something I'm really worried about getting off the table, usually almost all my parts have holes. And so a punch of the appropriate size, you can stick in the hole and kind of like give it a pry. And that's one way. But often what I'll do is in that dead space, just hang the part off the grinding chuck ah. an eighth an inch. And then you can just take like a brass drift and pop it. Uh, or one of the most common tools I use for getting parts off the chuck, I have a set of the uh, Nipex parallel jaw pliers. Yep. And I really like those for like clamping on and then just pop it again. Uh, I also use the Nipex uh, <laughs> parallel jaw wrenches. They're perfect. Uh, excellent. But, uh, yeah. Uh, Evils okay, asks, so. so Evils says, he's an aquarist. Have you ever heard that word? I have not. I believe that means an aquarium enthusiast. Um, oh, I thought it was like a zodiac sign. It might have been. Uh, we're going to start singing. If overheating is as big a problem as it is in an aquarium, don't rely on the built-in bimetallic strip thermostat. <laughs> I am also an aquarium. Okay, so I think, and he says he's also an Aquarius, by the way. Uh, I, I believe I'm speaking for you uh, also, so if I'm wrong, correct me. But the the units we got have a separate, you know, solid yes. state probe, probe in the tank, digital readout kind of thing. So we don't we're definitely not in the bimetallic strip department. Don't worry about that. Um, and uh, one question I had about oh, and, and a related question from YouTube. Carl says. Do you use mechanical agitation in the coolant tank or rely on convection? I rely on convection. Convection, and mine has weirs in it, which I I find to be effective in a grinding tank. You know, like even with the filter, there still gets a little bit of particulate. Most of it settles in that first weir column. Yeah. Um, and so my concern was the... I have the, the heater on the second weir where the pump is, and it's the bigger of the two cat, uh, I don't know, two areas of the tank. Um, my concern was is that the first stage would be cold in the morning, um, and that's part of the running the coolant as I warm it up is to like kind of cycle, shift the cold coolant into the hot, heated area. Mm. But... Uh, I honestly think once you have, I mean, it's a 22-gallon tank, let's say 15 of it is heated, I, I think you, yeah. you you get enough of that mass in a metal tank, it's probably keeping the other half warm enough. Yeah, your your tank has has uh, uh, the weirs, and my tank does not, which means from my standpoint, your tank is weird. Am I Am I wrong? Sure. <laughs> okay. Moving on. Uh, yeah, I my tank does not have weirs. Uh, my old one did. My my uh, Brown and Sharp did. 
so I don't I don't think much about that. But no, I I have I just throw it in. the The pumping action of the coolant takes care of any concerns about um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, gradient temperature gradient. Uh, here's a question: homogeneity. There we go. Yeah, <laughs> we'll go with that. So, uh, or uh, my question for you is: magnetic chuck. Magnetic mm. chucks generate uh, electric, electrically operated electromagnetic chucks. There we go. Uh, generate heat. My chuck generates heat, and sometimes when I'm working with little things, uh, I'll cr I'll have to crank the. Uh, let me let me clarify that i have some pieces that i use for work holding of non-magnetic substances i'll leave that as an exercise to the student that are relatively small in surface area so i i crank the current up on my magnetic chuck this in turn does cause heating in the chuck do okay. you think about well a are you using electromagnetic chucks or permanent magnet chucks and b how does this affect your thoughts about therms? And before you answer, please just keep in mind that K Bonk reports 78 degrees and sunny in Philadelphia. Please continue. Uh, I do not use electric chucks. Um, I can make a, a permanent manual chuck do whatever I need it to do. Um, you know, like if I need a fine pool chuck, I just set this on top of my manual chuck and uh if i need less magnetism i have standoffs um it's never been worth the risk or the not, not risk i guess but electric chucks are not without drama um it, they have a time life to them um there's the heat element i've found because they heat up there's more opportunity for coolant to get under them than say a permanent manual chuck um so that being said if uh if you must um <laughs> if you look at like companies that do incredibly high precision grinding they're cooling their chucks they have nozzles running down the length of the table shooting onto the chuck um and that's something they take pretty seriously uh the chuck or maybe maybe they're grinding a part elevated from the chuck they're they're also cooling the underside of the part um so but those are usually very long grinders where that uh heating action of the electric chuck is going to be significantly more of a problem uh on a 18 inch chuck you know you might you might be fighting a tenth or two over the day whereas they might be fighting five tenths over a day so and that's a big fight uh yeah so Lots of coolant. I use tons of coolant. I, if you watch my grinding process, that sucker is blasting uh, coolant. And I have lots of shielding. <laughs> and, you know, gallons per hour, I haven't calculated it, but I use a lot. Are you in the uh, uh, mega flood camp or are you being kind if of. If I'm going to go through the it? trouble of having to clean my chuck dry it every time i put on a part i'm going to get the full benefit and so if, if you're running any coolant you might as well run like as much as possible um otherwise i'm, I'm just going to grind dry which i do occasionally do um 
I find like, you know, if I'm feeding individual parts into a fixture for a very fast, like sub one minute operation, uh, I'll adjust my parameters down till it allows me to grind it dry. But then I can go significantly quicker on the part changeover, not having to deal with coolant. Um, so that's yeah, a very dry grinding that... has some versatility to it, I guess. If you, if you can make it work. I think that's brilliant. You just pointed out a trade-off you can make. Time spent dealing with coolant versus time spent, you know, staying on your parts. Yeah. People underestimate change over time on grinding work. Um, I don't often do a lot of generic mill this flat and parallel or grind this flat and parallel type work. I have one guy who I kind of like. He mills some parts, sends them to me, and I just take them to final thickness, both sides. Um, but the time it takes to load the chuck with parts is longer than the time it takes to grind the chuck worth of parts. Um, and, and so basically, on a small chuck, it, it's, it, you can never get away from the machine. You're always cleaning and mm. uh, wiping off stuff. So, um, But back to my workflow... You know, we we mounted our part after the warm up and initial stoning of the chuck. We grind it, and now we're ready to flip and grind the opposite side. And this is really important. Back to cleanliness. If your part has like threaded holes in it, like most the world's parts do, you have to get those impeccably clean. Um, and so I think it's really important if you're running coolant. You need to have some kind of coolant squirt gun set up on your machine, ready to go, plumbed at all times. Um, I see a lot of manufacturers have some sort of system where when you want to wash down the machine, you disconnect the hose from the spraying nozzle for the wheel and mount a water pistol. Um, it really needs to be plumbed independently. Like any... No, nothing can stop you from wanting to hose off a part. You know, it's got to be very effortlessly done. So, like, on my machine, it's just right here, and I can hose off, and then back to grinding. Cool. So, uh, and so what the it... hose really helps you get those holes clean. Yeah. And then you can go back to, you know, doing what you need to do to clean the chuck and uh, set up for your next next part yeah the okamoto has a you just loosen up a, a knob and you could yank the the coolant off and then use it as a as a clean uh, wash down hose but i never yeah. thought of, i never thought of making a little water pistol that goes on it um and i don't have an easy way I guess I, I could I could throw a valve and then turn on the coolant and then I can have uh, a separate plumbed uh, water pistol. And it's, it's, I it's actually have a it's a, a Jupiter pneumatics air gun mm -hmm. that's squirting the coolant and it's a very small stream about six millimeters quarter inch, but it, it's because it's such a small higher pressure stream it's very good for like squirting out holes, and uh, so. You don't need like a ton of flow. You're not using this to like hose down the machine at the end of the day. This right. is all about getting stuff clean. I don't like using an air pistol because or with air because just 
sends crap everywhere. And I find, like, kind of working in the confines of the coolant enclosure, hosing out the holes, to be relatively low mess, but very effective. So you're, you're it's not super high pressure. You're just getting no. decent flow. It's, and- a, it's a nice stream. Like, you know, you yeah. can shoot it across the shop. But uh, <laughs> It's good if you have a cat. Um, and then I'll use that same hose to hose off the chuck and get the bulk of it. And then a quick squeegee gets everything. And then I'm back to cleaning and a stone. So you, you've made your uh, opinion pretty clear about air. You're not a big fan of air. Uh, no, I really try not to incorporate it on anything with the grinding machine. I do have one part I do where it, it, it's ceramic and ceramic swarf uh, has an affinity to just kind of stick to everything, especially when it's like really fine grit. Mm-hmm. So uh, air was about the only thing I could find to make that happen. But um, I, I guess I should elaborate back to needing to get like the bottom of a part with tap hole so clean. You run the risk when you're inverted and you set it on your chuck. When you drop it, even if you're gentle, it could shake something out of the hole. Ah, okay. But that comes back to knowing what a good precision seating feels like. So you drop your part and then give it a scooch or two, and you'll know if something got under the part. But being thorough and cleaning out those holes prevents that from happening. Now, I will I will admit that I do use air and, uh, but I respect, you know, your, your thoughts about that. Um, I don't even have air plumbed to this shop. That, that tells the whole story. So, uh, (laughs) I do use air and I'm very well aware of the ancient dictum that you do not use air around a grinder. Uh, but, um, there's, I, there's actually stickers on the Parker warning you not to do that. Well, they, the stickers should read, do not be a bozo, which. Yeah, precisely. I think you could use it with good judgment. Uh, you know, don't be like cleaning off under the ways or. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me get the, look, there's a little grid on the ways. I'll get it with the uh, high pressure air. Uh, I totally agree. So I, I do use air that we have a few questions. Um. Let's see. Paul Morley asks, what was that you held up? You said you would put it on your fine pole chuck. So you had a, a widget that that you said, I could take this and put it on my chuck if I needed to blah. W- tell us about your, um, some of the. Oh, oh no. <laughs> so I have a standard Walker magnetic chuck, which is kind of like a hybrid pole. It's coarse and fine. Okay. But say I'm doing something really thin and I need a true fine pole chuck. I, I have just a couple different sizes. This is a fine pull Herman Schmidt. Could, could you give us an orthographic uh, orth- orthographic view? Ah, there we go. Beautiful. And that Herman Schmidt, uh, how many years does it take to pay f- pay that off? <laughs> <laughs> just <Yeah>. checking. <laughs> uh, so that's a little chuck, and it's got a little key, right, to turn the magnet on and off. There One thing I like about Herman Schmidt's chucks is the key is not attached. 
Um, I think anybody who's worked on a manual chuck has at some point had a spin fixture or dead center set where it's preventing you from turning the handle. You know, mm-hmm. it's blocking the handle as you go to rotate it. Um, and so with like a, a chuck that just takes an Allen key, you can, you can get in there and do what you need to do a lot easier. Yeah. That's a cute little, uh, that's a cute little chuck. Um, almost says, oh no, we have a couple of questions built in here. Well, let's get almost. He says, it's been my experience that mist coolant can affect parts more so than say mag chuck heat induction or no coolant that is compensated for wrong question mark. I think the basis of what he's saying is that mist coolant has a, a big effect. And in fact, mist coolant is a huge refrigerant. Uh, yeah, there's, there's an evaporative cooling effect. Um, so I follow the readings of this guy named Dr. Jeffrey Badger. And uh, he posts in uh, Cutting Tool Engineering magazine. And he once referred to minimum quantity lubricant as the future of grinding. And it always will be. People keep trying to inject it into the grinding process, but it never quite delivers on all the promises. Um, and I, I found that pretty funny. Like, I know some people who use it effectively and are happy with it, but uh, it's it's still a mess. And if I'm going to deal with a little bit of mess, I might as well just deal with all the mess. <laughs> all all in. Like... <laughs> so, We're all in with um, the mess. But if you don't have coolant on your machine or you're just doing light kind of tool room grinding where you're decking off a part here or there, it's it's effective. Um, so if, if, if you need cooling and don't have it, it's certainly easier and cheaper to get into than flood. Yeah. Uh, also, um, K-Bonk says, have you found a good quality knockoff non-electric chuck? Basically, he wants a non-electric chuck that isn't a Herman Schmidt. Uh, I like Walker. Um, mm, yeah, I don't. I don't. Their their new ones are no longer made in the USA, so I guess that's kind of a knockoff. <laughs> a, that makes me sad because yeah. Walker, the company, is an hour and a half from here in Worcester, Massachusetts. At least on their small ones, you know, maybe, maybe yeah. they just decide to focus on the big electro magnetic ones in house. But, um, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. You can find the old Walker Ceramaxes. Um, they have like a cast body painted white. You can find those very reasonably used most of the time. Um, and I, I have a few kicking around. I had two flavors. That would, be, that would be what I would get. I had two flavors of Walkers. One, uh, uh, ended up so, so my grinder, my brown and sharp came with a Walker that was a cast aluminum base. And I ended up taking that off, uh, turning it into a backup and then got another Walker off eBay. They're not super expensive. And, but the walkers in general have been very, very solid, really nice, uh, chucks. I have no complaints with this non-American built Walker. Um, if anything, I kind of like the body is monolithic. It's just like a big block of metal. And so you can stand it on its side really easily mm. uh, if you ever needed to, stuff like that. Um, 
but yeah, I when I spec'd out the machine, I told him to put a Walker Chuck on it, and that showed up, and I was like, oh, it's Walker <laughs> Premium, but it's no longer made in the USA. Yeah. So I'm if in the, in the future if I were to buy that machine again, I would probably get it without a Chuck and just find something, you know, on my own. And, and the Okamoto came with an Okamoto Chuck, which of mm-hmm. course they're sourcing from somewhere. Um, but it's been fine. I, I, I've had no issues with it. Um, and that's an electric and that's been, that's been okay. Uh, so let's see. K bonk asks, how about vacuum? So it's a good question. Vacuum holding vacuum work holding on the grinder. Have you ever done it for the first time recently? Uh, I had to grind 60, uh, G10, samples customer water jetted and uh they were eighth inch and they wanted them ground down to three millimeters which is about 0.1181 yeah, so 118 thousand tenth um and yeah I, uh, I made a small vacuum fixture and had to run a line over from the mill side of the shop to hold them uh but i, I was really impressed with how uh painless that was they weren't looking for dead flat and I told them that, you know, uh, uh, something like G10, it, it's going to have a lot of stress and it's going to curve as you grind it. But uh, they just wanted two parallel sides and, a, you know, like a nice cohesive thickness. So when they sandwich it down, it acts as an insulating spacer. And, uh, yeah, I was able to get them that pretty painlessly. Um, and, yeah, I, I was surprised how well G10 ground on the back chuck. So. Where, did you make... Uh, a little vacuum fixture or was that a purchased chuck? I bought, I made the chuck and then I bought the vacuum generator kind of mm-hmm. deal that Jay Pearson sells. And I was yep. pretty happy with that. So, so while we're on the topic of vacuum, I just want to point out that uh, there are vacuum pumps out there that are inexpensive and they are designed for air conditioner manu- uh, air conditioner maintenance guys. Uh, and I bought one of those to use in a vacuum truck application, and they will overheat uh, mm-hmm. in that application. And and I had a failure, not a catastrophic failure, but it basically failed. Uh, the vacuum generators of which you're talking, which is a Venturi that basically takes air pressure and and turns a, a another line into a vacuum line actually work shockingly well uh and they use just a little air consumption there was like i thought my my yeah. rotary compressor would be running all day but it really was pretty mild it's so. stunning how how efficient it is compared to how efficient you imagined it would be so yeah. if you want to get into the vacuum holding game uh do not go the direction uh of the vacuum pump for ac guys do go the direction of the venturis and and jay pearson pearson work holding excellent source for that stuff um good point uh wr rocket says and i did not forget about you wr rocket with respect to antennas we'll talk does the resin in the g10 try to load up the grinding wheels at all i 
was convinced that was what I was going to be dealing with. And uh, I used a silicon carbide 39C wheel. Yeah, it. it, uh, I wasn't getting aggressive with it, but uh, it ground pretty much painlessly. There you go. What what led you to choose the uh, silicon carbide? Uh, I do like a lot of linen based phenolic resin, and Mm. I've always had good luck with silicon carbide on that stuff. And uh, it's just a sharp, somewhat open bond. Um, and so like in that, I'm not looking for like a plowing action that you would get with like a dollar aluminum oxide grain. I want the sharpest cutting action possible. And usually that's silicon carbide. So let's get back to our, our, our workflow here. Um, we, I'm going to actually bounce us a little earlier in the process. Um, we did not talk about you know, mounting a wheel, balancing a wheel and putting a wheel on the machine, which is, mm. which is part of the workflow. So let's talk a little bit about that. I, I obviously have opinions. Uh, I know that comes as a shock about, uh, wheel balancing and such, but ta- let's talk a little bit about preparation, uh, starting with a new wheel. How do you go about okay. it? Uh, ring test. So I'm assuming we're talking about like a sand wheel. Um, see if it's going to explode or not. We're all good there. <laughs> all mounted on the hub. You know, I don't think I've ever heard it put better or more convincingly that you should do the ring test than what you just said. See if it's going to I've, explode. I've had two wheels explode on me and it's just really not a good time. Um, and one was on a vertical ID grinder which is like a rotating table, kind of like a vertical lathe, and then the grinding head. And so the grinding head's like face height. Uh, oh. <laughs> and I I really didn't care for that. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, and then I get it mounted on the hub. Um, I tighten it appropriately, but I find with coolant, as soon as it gets wet, you can almost always get like another cinch out of it. Um, once those blotter papers get a little moisture in them, like they need just a little more snugging. Um, so usually what I do is like I'll get it on there and I'll rough dress the bottom and sides. And once the blotters have got some wetness on them, I, I give it one more snug and then I go in and do finish bottom and side dressing. So um, when I'm dressing the sides, I'm putting back taper into the sides, making like a a dish shape on each side of the wheel How that much? allows me to side wheel. I do a degree okay. on the first half. And then anytime I'm doing redressing of the side, like say I'm dressing slots and going in and redressing, uh, I'll do a half a degree that way. Like the wheel, you're not running up that whole taper each time. Um, it's kind of like a, a bevel and then a sharpening bevel on a knife. Um, so yeah, I do a degree the first time and then half after that. And, uh, so I find by dressing all the way up to the hub or as close as you can get, you, you get a lot of, uh, variation on thickness removed and that kind of helps with balance. Um, but typically with sand wheels, I do not balance. The only time I'm balancing are larger super abrasives. Okay. Um, 
so I balance all the time. And you're part of the big balancing industry, though. I am. I'm. <laughs> I'm part of big balancing. Exactly. You I, and I have those. I'm. I'm towing the corporate line here. <laughs> Unix likes big balancing. I think we. Uh, you know, Unix. I. I don't know if you know this, but I played bass for big balancing back in the '80s. It's true. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of balancing. Of course, with the B200 balancing rings from Kinetic Precision, balancing is easy and fast. You too can balance. No. I think balance, um, I'm doing things on grinders that most people aren't doing on most grinders. Like, uh, I'm running a lot slower wheel speeds most of the mm -hmm. time for the work I'm doing, and it's pretty good grinder in terms of vibration if i was running like a cheaper well-used ballway grinder i noticed that a ballway machine can sometimes excite a vibration a little easier than a hydrodynamic machine Interesting. and if it has a fixed 3600 rpm spindle that's another issue um i think it's going to, to jump into a a chatter pattern a little more easier than a machine where you can tune all those variables. So this is a rabbit hole that we don't have time to go down, but I hope we can have you back to go down it. Uh, but modern grinders are all VFDs and we usually can grab a knob and change the wheel speed easily. Whereas mm -hmm. older grinders um, mm -hmm. are fixed and 60 Hertz. 60 hertz baby and 3600 rpm and you are done and that led to lots of procedures which today we look at and go why are we doing that like never ever turn off your grinder well or your spindle i should say well yeah. why because that big jolt you get when you turn it on is going to is going to move the wheel and it, well you don't get a big jolt on a grinder that has a vfd it's just going to accelerate nicely so i think there's a lot of stuff that we have built into our grinding foo from the ancients that didn't have vfds yeah that's that's extremely fair um so but i mean just say you have a borderline amount of imbalance like it's it's not quite good enough but the machine can suppress it at a lower rpm at 3600 rpm it, it might start to hop on the, the part. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I really strongly recommend a VFD if you buy a used grinder for in your garage because it can also solve your three-phase issue, you know? You can uh, do a single end. Minor point of, of uh, time here. We're at the top of the hour. We're going to go long, for which I will not apologize because we're having a good time and we're going to bring this in for a landing. Um Let's see. Uh, the other thing we should point out, and this is this is part of the rabbit hole that we don't have time to go down, is that there are resonances, and if you have an imbalance, and that imbalance excites a resonance, you're going to see major stuff on the on the on the work. You're going to see major evidence of it. Whereas if you're able to go in, this is an expedient fix and you can tell me if you agree with this adam but if you can go in and just change your wheel speed you may be able to get away from that resonance yeah. and live with it most machines 
like you would know more about this than me, but their natural frequency of resonance is near 60 hertz. So if you have a wheel hopping and the machines likes that, uh, it, it can excite a little easier. So just being able to kind of break that up. Well, uh, WR rocket suggests you just used to have to move. You, you used to have to move your grinder to Europe to get a lower spindle speed with 50 Hertz. 50 hertz. <laughs> Hey, Lanny Machine Tech is here. Welcome aboard the other Adam. Can we call you the other Adam? He said, VFD is going on both grinders now. Thanks for the tip, guys. You're welcome. And I put a VFD on my Harrig. My very first grinder was a Harrig 612, and I installed a VFD on it. And I have to say, just the slow acceleration and slow deceleration or controlled acceleration and controlled deceleration was worth the price of admission. Forget the fact that I had to do two-phase to three-phase conversion anyway. That was a wonderful thing and, and totally throws out a bunch of old old think. Um, um, back, back to uh, parameters real quick. We were talking about kind of things we could do to suppress a potential vibration. And one of them is like your step-over parameters working to non-integers of the wheel width is handy so if you have a half inch wheel don't take a quarter inch step over because that corner is going to kind of track in the same place every time uh and then usually you have a different finishing step over than your roughing step over and your finishing step over should be a non-integer of either of those as well agree 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 double thumbs up i that is a if you guys don't understand what Adam just said, get the recording and listen to it 17 times. Uh, very important to uh, not reinforce some sort of uh, uh, input from the from a, an imbalance on your on your work, and it, it, that can go a very long way to hide to improve your surface finish given the parameters you have available. So normally I'm not a big fan of like a continuous feed, what we'd call like a zigzag path yeah. mm -hmm. for surface grinding because it's the least time efficient. Um, going across, stepping over, going across, like, you know, more of a, a stepped path is, is going to be your most efficient way to cut the part. Um, but I the zigzag is, is also pretty good for like not allowing those patterns to form. Um, uh, whereas a, a CNC grinder, it can, it can step across very precisely and you, you get these very, a little too precisely uh, actually. That, yeah. So that was definitely something I saw going from a manual machine to a CNC machine is that it's going to do the same thing every pass. And that's mm -hmm. actually not good. Uh, excellent point. Um, Carl says, I think Robin Renzetti just put a VFD on a grinder. Yes. Uh, so here's a question. Would you ever not put a VFD on, on a spindle motor going forward in this life? And I think the answer to, for me is absolutely not. I would always use a VFD. Yeah. I, I, I have not seen any downside to them. Um, so. Now you had, you had a question about VFDs. Oh yeah, I'm uh, lathe shopping, and despite having 480 and 243 phase in my shop, I managed to find one that's 380, and <laughs> uh, and uh, it's got three motors on it. Um, 
and I was wondering, have you ever used a single VFD to generate 50 hertz 380 for, is that is that a, allowable uh, to feed three separate motors, basically? So in my experience, a relatively inexpensive VFD is going to allow you to change frequency and create three phase from single phase, but it doesn't speak to voltage. So if you need 380, um, you got to do that before you got to do that before the VFD. So you're either going to, uh, use a special transformer to get you to 380, mm -hmm. or if you have one of these multi-tap transformers, you may be able to go find the 380 tap si simultaneous with your other loads and pull that off. Oh. And I know you, I know you have a, a transformer cause you have some crazy stuff going yeah. on already. Um, you may be able to find your 380 tap and just pull right off of that. So you can go from from that into a, a VFD uh, and then say to the VFD, make 50 hertz and you're done. Yeah. I you know, I'm I'm very comfortable with my my phase converters, um, but I'm literally running out of wall space. And so I thought uh, a VFD can usually be pretty compact solution. Um you know, might even be able to fit it in the existing electrical panel on the machine. Uh, and so I, I kind of wanted to explore that a little, but, uh, we'll see. uh, okay. K bonk says pretty sure VFDs are best on one motor, but I don't know. So, and then, and then almost says you don't want to use a single VFD for multiple motors. I'm going to agree and disagree on these. The biggest thing with VFDs is you don't want to put any sort of switching or connectors between the VFD and the motor. So mm. VFD is married to a motor, full stop. You can actually damage a VFD if you have a switch between it and the motor and you start switching things around. Um, uh, Carl, Carl says, doesn't a VFD have implicit voltage regulation? Uh, it depends how much you paid for it, Carl. <laughs> That's the problem. So the cheap ones, you know, you're going to spend 150, 200 bucks on a box. Uh, it does not have voltage regulation. In fact, what they do is they take, they take your input, they rectify it to DC, and then they chop it and send it out the three phases. Uh, and that's just switching. So there's no voltage changing. It's just pure switching. So no, the answer is for the cheap ones, it does not have voltage regulation. Um, but you you brought up a question, and this is what K Bonk was commenting on. You had multiple motors, and mm -hmm. if you just wanted to run multiple motors, um, like in parallel going into a VFD, I. I am not sure that that would work. I can't come up with an argument with why it wouldn't work. However, really a VFD is designed to be looking at one motor. So unless you want to okay. save, you know, you're talking the difference between spending 200 bucks and spending 600 bucks. I would put one VFD per motor full stop because they also don't do overload protection and, it also gives you the opportunity to run the different motors at different frequencies if that's what you wanted to do. So, um, yeah, that's my, my philosophy is the VFD is married to a single motor. 
and you can get them really tiny. Like if you have, if you have like a, uh, like a table motor or, you know, some sort of small motor, you can get really small VFDs. They'll go yeah. down to, you know, yeah, eight well, horsepower. One's, a, one's for the feed box and the other's for a lubrication pump. Um, yep. so and it's like, eh, those probably don't have a lot of, uh, draw on them, but, uh, yeah. I don't know. You could probably run if you have a bunch of little motors that you don't need to control. I, I think you can parallel them up and they'll work fine. That's one right. one electrical engineer's opinion. Um, That's just one of the lays I was looking at, though. So I I don't know. You, the American lathes uh, always have a soft spot in my heart, so you know I might <laughs> end up that direction. I I actually don't think I've ever heard of a three eighty. Uh, power source so that's very interesting that it was was that american power swiss, source um oh, okay what uh swiss lathe and then there's there's a german brand i was looking at as well that's ah, okay so. well i shouldn't talk because my okamoto is 200 volts mm. uh that was interesting um WR Rocket says, if you're installing a VFD yourself by putting an EMI filter on the power input can be a good idea or make sure it has one built in. Yeah, VFDs definitely have the potential of generating EMI, which stands for electromagnetic interference. Um, so if you're a radio guy and a VFD guy, you might have some issues. Um, Paul says, hmm, no switch between VFD and motor. I have a manual barrel switch between my grinder motor and my mill motor, which happens to be essentially the same size. I never switch when anything is on. Yeah, you've gotten away with it because you've been careful. But if a, a day arrives when you're not careful, uh, then I have some uh, uh, semiconductors I want to sell you. <laughs> so just use extreme caution. But generally, we want to keep them tied together. So uh, we got off the track of workflow a little bit, but it was worth it because guys had questions. Uh, so we've mounted a wheel. We've balanced or not balanced the wheel. Uh, we've compensated for not balancing the wheel. Um, we've talked about and the chucking things and de-chucking things. Uh, what's next? Demagnetizing things. Let's talk about that. Um, so like if you're going from your, your first grind to your second grind, or maybe even your third on, you know, you're constantly flipping flat parts. Uh, I like to demagnetize it because you kind of get like a false, false sense of how flat it is when you're putting it on the chuck, because if it has a little magnetism, it's pulling itself down to the chuck, even when the chuck's off. And so you might do the, the corner tap, you know, if I'm just rough grinding, I'm not going to take it over to the, the granite and, you know. Mm. see how flat it is I, i'll just feel if it's flat enough for the roughing stage uh and if it's got a little magnetism yet you, you can't really tell that when you put it on the chuck um so uh yeah so i like a, a demagnetizing step thrown in there and also it can help if you got swarf stuck to the steel part it can help it kind of come off so and a demagnetizer uh phase one I mean, yeah. inexpensive. I I, I kind of hold my nose up in the air like some of that stuff, but it really it works fine. Makes works a fine. Horrendous sound, but <laughs> it's no longer magnetic. Okay, so guys, here's what a demagnetizer is. So we know what we're talking about. 
It's a transformer. Imagine a transformer winding, but it's one winding, and the core of the transformer comes around and leaves a gap. So you have this very intense magnetic field that's running at 60 hertz. And then you run your part across it, and it when it gets to the real strong part of that gap, the magnetic domains are being flopped around. And as you draw it away from that gap, they land in random positions, and then, then you're done. So now you've basically randomized all of your magnetic domains. Um, Carl says, it's a choke. Carl, you and I agree, but remember, there's some people here that think a choke is something else. And I'm not going to rag on the jujiteros, but just remember, it means something else. So exactly correct. So that's that's how a demagnetizer works. And when you're in when you're holding a part and you're you're going across that demagnetizer and you get to that gap, it could be pretty exciting, right? <laughs> you could feel that thing vibrating in your hand, and it could scare the scare the crap out of you. Here's a tip from me: uh, get some of that green uh, powder coating masking adhesive uh, tape. Uh, McMaster Car sells it. I'll try to remember to put the part number up. Uh, it's three thousandths of an inch uh, thick and very rugged. Put it across your demagnetizer. So now when you put your part down, you're not putting it on a piece of cheap stainless. Uh, you're, you're rubbing it on a piece of plastic. But don't put anything too thick on it or you're going to lose the benefit of the very strong magnetic field. Anyway, sorry. You got me all excited about demagnetizing. Uh, Tux Garage says, how do you keep your precision parts from oxidizing, thus keeping them precision? I use uh, a CRC rust preventative spray, which I like. I think it's 520 is their number. What do you do, Adam? Keep dry shop. <laughs> no, no humidity allowed. No, I mean, I... I, I... I make sure the shop airs dry, but like I, when I store stuff, I don't, unless it's going away for a long, long time. Like I have some fixtures that come out about once a year, I'll hit with some LPS, but like my kind of use once a week type stuff, it goes in the box dry. So Tuck, um, Tuck asks even but, parts you, but, you ship to customers. Parts that are going shipped. They get uh LPS and VCI paper, but, um, I, in my journey through this trade, I have discovered some people, when they touch parts, cause them to rust, and others do not. I'm in the lucky camp. I do not have oil acid things going on with my, my skin. And I so, ha I have a yeah, friend. I, I absolutely have dealt with people when they touch something bare steel. Next day, it's got fingerprints on it. I, I have a buddy of mine. When he comes over to my shop, he just does this. He doesn't, he doesn't touch anything. I said, what's going on? He says, I rust everything I touch. I said, don't be ridiculous. Well, one day we found out he rusted everything he touched. <laughs> yep. I don't understand it, but there it is. Yeah. Uh, almost yeah, machining I've heard says, a lot of wild theories, but yeah, I've never really known why that is. Yeah. Uh, with respect to the tape, but on top of the demagnetizer, almost machining suggests Kapton. Yes, perfect. Um, excellent. So we, I think we covered that pretty good. So let's see, we've demagnetized parts. Um, 
are we at the end of our workflow? We've shipped the parts in VCI, VCI paper and LPS. Yeah, I'd and, say everything else is just going to be an iteration of what we've established. Like, say you you're measuring and going back on. Well, same principles. Clean. What about clean. what about end of day? Yeah, Tux Garage says final cleanup? Question mark. So, uh, as I'm cleaning and washing down the grinder, the wheel's still running, but there's no coolant on it. So I let the wheel fling off for however long it takes me to clean up the grinder, and uh, yeah, then I shut her down. So on the manual grinder with no coolant, I just shut it off. Um, uh, now, oddly, on the Parker Majestics, there's this old wives' tale that the table has to be all the way to the column in order for the lubrication system to work. And what it was is there is a oil port in the table that when the table was all the way back, you could remove a screw and stick an oiler down to screw to put oil on the bronze nut for the lead screw for the table. And that's the only reason it had to be all the way back, but a lot of one-shot <laughs> systems solve that. Uh, but the the wise tale of the table has to be all the way back in order for the lubrication to work stuck around. And uh, <laughs> sad that's to say, funny. I still put the table all the way back. Because to me, a grinder with the table out not doing anything looks a little off. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I usually park the table back by the column, even though I know it's idiocy. Uh, <laughs> now, do you use so. any uh, mist collection? Yeah, I have a a, uh, a Quattro HEPA filter set up to on the manual one. Then uh, the CNC one, I have a hose I could drag over there if I'm doing doing mist, but uh, I don't get a lot of coolant mist, so. The okay. enclosures are pretty high. I, I I would notice if residue or, or abrasive was coming out of the machine, you know, I, I, I would pick it up and notice, but it hasn't been an issue. So, so I have a uh, Mist Fit 550, which is made by AeroX in Toronto, which is the same. I learned about it from Grimsmo, and that mm. that sucks up. Uh, you know, big, big plenum that I designed and then a, another hose that goes to the wheel housing and that sucks up. And the idea is, is that coolant mist. And when I'm doing stones, there is a lot of it, uh, gets sucked up. It coalesces on these, uh, sections, these plates, and then it drips back down. Well, what happens is when you turn off the mist collector, you get a whole bunch of dripping. So when I Does shut it come down through the, the hose that collects say, through, or is there say, a separate hose? Well, oh. actually there's two places. So it depends how you, uh, configure it. I, in fact, configured it the way you're imagining. So there's a tray up there and it drips onto the tray and then it goes down this other clear hose, which I have returning mm -hmm. to my coolant. Um, but also coolant will go up into the big air hoses and then kind of stay there, you know, kind of, it's, it's kind of being held there. Yeah. When you turn off the airflow, it'll, it'll dribble back out, which is totally fine. Yeah. But you have to know that because if you're all cleaned up and then you go to turn off the, the mist collector, all of a sudden it all dribbles down. So the first thing I do is I turn off the mist collector, which starts the dribbling, which is fine. And then I kind of do the same thing you do clean up with the wheel running for a while. Um, 
And one thing you have to, I can't emphasize this enough. When you go to clean up and you could tell me if you agree or disagree with this, Adam, I have a funny feeling. I know which it'll be. Don't, don't run your hand into the wheel when you're wiping would, the table down. Exactly. I would recommend that as, <laughs> as other than ideal. Now I've never done it, but uh, I do have a friend who did get a serious injury uh, that way. Okay. So when you're cleaning, you, your brain is already shutting down. It's like, I finished this long day of grinding. Everything's cool. I'm so happy I made these parts. You have to be very vigilant when that wheel's running and be very, my, very My careful. number one safety thing is develop the habit of wiping left to right. Never like back and forth. You always start at the, say your table's all the way, you know, your wheel's all the way to park position and you wipe away from the wheel every single time. I like that. So, that's a win. Because but you get in the habit, like you might be wiping and you just send your hand right into the wheel. So. Yeah, I guess what I do is I look at the wheel and I I start my, you know, whatever cleaning or stoning or whatever I'm doing, I'm looking at the wheel. It's like, I see you, I know where you are and you're not getting my hand. So be super careful because that's the time of day where you're tired, you're shutting down, you're cleaning up and you can get a little inattentive. Be super careful about a wheel that's running. Um, and then, oh, go ahead. Uh, and then last thing I do is if, unless I'm like going to be hopping right back on it in the morning, doing the exact same thing, I usually pull the wheel off the arbor Oh, and put the wheel away. So seeing, seeing as I am going to be doing the same thing the next day, <laughs> I generally leave the wheel on. Uh, but that's, I, I like that. That's a, that's a good thing to do. Um, now on my machine, I, after I do the cleanup that we just talked about, I center the table again, just cause, um, I don't have any particular place for and aft for it. And then I turn off the spindle. So uh, again, it, it will spin down very slowly, but under control. And that's, I don't like to, uh, it's perfectly healthy to just like kill power to the machine and walk away is, is actually okay. But I like to tell the VFD to turn the wheel off. It takes, I don't know, 45 seconds or something to bring it down to zero. And once I see the RPM meter kind of kick down to zero, like the VFD is all done. Then I will hit the e-stop, hit the off button, and then kill the the the, the uh, disconnect to, to the power of the system. What what's your what's your procedure? Yeah, pretty much. Like once spindles off, yeah, there's I hit power off on the control, kill the power at the machine cabinet, and then shut down the transformer. Excellent. Well, I think we did it. We took the workflow from showing up in the morning and having coffee, as you correctly pointed out. <laughs> yeah. All the way to... But, uh, uh, you know, back to like needing to develop feel for seating parts really precisely. Um, are you familiar like with gauge R&R studies? Basically, you have multiple people associated with the process, measure 10 parts, 10 times, and you're looking for how much human variation amongst all your operators and quality professionals is happening because of feel, basically. Um, you could 
apply that same concept to seating parts on a grinder. You know, have first, second, and third shift all seat parts on a grinder and and deck them off and and see how much variation is happening. Not necessarily in size, but in size from one another of those parts, uh, and, and and see how how good each of your people are at, at getting those parts down parallel, and uh, you can develop the skill set that way, controlled. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Talking to process people, sometimes they get annoyed when the answer is you got to be good at your job. Like. <laughs> Well, it's a very good point because, you know, the, the term CNC operator is a term we imagine has less skill associated with it than CNC machinist. And th frankly, when there's skill required, there's skill required and you, you shouldn't be apologizing for it. Um, well, I think a lot of the people consuming this particular uh, source of information are are one person shops or small number of person shops. But I could imagine that if you have a large operation, um, it, it's desirable to not be super dependent on somebody's you know feel for a particular process. But and part of the problem is like. Grinding stuff flat and parallel on a magnetic chuck isn't really a high production means of doing things. So, like, if we look at, like, you know, rotor pumps and stuff like that, stuff that's getting made in huge quantities, automotive components that all need to be flat and parallel, it's probably not being done on a surface grinder. It's probably like a double disc or a fine grinder, and they're hitting both faces simultaneously. And so, because the the highest volumes of grinding is not done on a magnet chuck. You just don't have the the processes built up like you would like palletizing a CNC five axis mill. You know, there's right. there's deep industrial knowledge on that subject, but not so much uh, robotic robotically loading parts into a surface grinder. You know, so. Well, I think we did it, and uh, Adam, I can't thank you enough for coming on and once again and sharing your wisdom. Uh, I'm getting no a lot of problem. a lot of positive feedback from the folks. Uh, and if you guys have any further questions, uh, you could find Adam on uh, on his YouTube channel, and uh, maybe even pop him. Yeah, you still receive. You're still on Instagram, right? Yeah, I just don't really post much. Yeah. All right, I Are still you, people I chat with on there. So, is it Adam underscore the underscore machinist? I think, or did you fix Good that question? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you what, we'll put it in the information. Uh, yeah, underscores. Okay, underscores. So it's Adam underscore the underscore machinist on Instagram. Uh, awesome. And uh, if you guys have any other questions, let me know. You should go to, uh, for the links to stuff we talked about, pfg.gg slash links. If you need to uh, get flat and stay flat, you need some PFG stones. You can go to pfgstones.com and I promise we will leave you flat. So uh, once again, Adam, thanks so much. If you guys are on Discord, you could stick around for the after party. Everybody, thanks for being here. Carl, you're awesome. Thanks for being here. Almost machining. I appreciate you being here also in, in Arizona. Robert Simpson, thanks. Adrian, 
awesome to see you. I'll get going on that uh, Swiss lathe. Uh, I'll get the order in Monday. And uh, let's see, Tux Garage, Unix Carbide, Evils. Uh, who else is on Discord? Blake is on Discord, WR Rocket, and Paul Morley from Wyndham, New Hampshire, and somewhere, it, where? what's your town, Adam? Strasburg, Ohio. There you go. This has been PFG Live. Take care, everyone.